I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Delano Squires. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to start today with Delano, who'll be talking to us about what I think is just a vicious smear, uh, including from the vice president herself over curriculum in Florida. There's a lot to dive into because it's representative of uh, some broader controversies around the country. We are then going to go to Ben, who will seamlessly transition us into some recent pushback against diversity, equity, and inclusion. So DEI, Josh is going to fill us in on the Israeli judicial reform news cycle. Um, again, there's just a lot of disinformation as as our administration would say, swirling around. And I'm eager to hear uh, Josh's take and help us sort of sort fact from fiction on that topic. And I'm going to discuss finally what else but Barbenheimer. So with that, we'll toss it to Delano, who's going to kick us off with Florida. Yeah, so I mean, I'm sure everyone has heard about the uh, recent fake controversy in Florida. Um, the accusations being that the state of Florida and, and obviously by association, Governor Ron DeSantis wants to erase sort of the, the ugly history of slavery in this country. Um, so this all stemmed from some new education standards that were published recently um, around social studies. And part of that, uh, those, those standards involve the teaching of chattel slavery um, to, to Florida students. So um, it, it the, the controversy really centers on one line, but I just want to read the line in context because an old pastor of mine said, when you take a text out of context, what you're left with is just a con. So here, here's here's how it goes. Um, so the, the standard said there should be an examination of the quote, various duties and trades performed by slaves. For example, agricultural work, painting, carpentry, tailoring, domestic service, blacksmithing, transportation. And then one line down, it says instruction includes how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. And that the use of that word, those words, personal benefit, was twisted primarily by the left, but not exclusively, um, to mean that the state of Florida says or believes that slavery benefited the enslaved. Um, and obviously, you know, the vice president went down. She was quite upset about that. Um, and, and every sort of progressive outlet and some conservative uh, pundits, uh, so at least some of the ones that I follow, particularly black conservatives, I think uh, attached themselves to this controversy, which I will call don't say slave. Um, and, it, and it seems to me that a lot of people have not learned their lesson. Um, and I'm not sure why anyone at the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC is given the benefit of the doubt regarding anything involving education history, um, African-American history, or the state of Florida, because it's obvious to me that this is really all about political gamesmanship. Um, I, I went through the standards. They're about 216 pages long. Uh, they talk extensively about all different types of topics, but particularly on slavery, um, everything from teaching about slave revolt, revolts to uh, abolitionist societies to different figures in reconstruction and then, you know, on throughout, you know, African-American history. So the notion that this wants to erase or sanitize uh, black history is completely false. Um, the other thing that, that I notice is um, 
there was a certain unwillingness to grapple with sort of the full um, complexity of the institution of slavery. So, so for instance, there were people who were saying, well, you know, enslaved Africans brought all of their skills over here. So even the notion that they were taught any trades or learned any skills or developed any skills itself is a whitewashing of history. And that just doesn't hold up, you know, to the historical record. I mean, the White House Historical Society talks about um, how um, the enslaved were taught masonry on the spot to help construct, you know, the White House. And there, there are other, you know, Monticello has something similar about, you know, how Jefferson would hire white artisans to, to teach um, his slaves, you know, different skills and trades. So, the, and, and you don't, you don't have to, you can acknowledge that without saying, oh, slavery, you're trying to say slavery benefited Africans. And, and I think it's just completely disingenuous. And I hate the way, I hate the way, you know, uh, black history and American history um, is used and abused by the left. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave it with this. I think um, any good and decent and moral and wise people would ensure that people, others, keep their hands off their history and their children. Um, and I think there's a certain unwillingness um, in our current political context to do either of those things when the left come a grabbing. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to the rest of the group. So look, I mean, I think that's a good overview. There's a lot to be to be said on this topic. Unfortunately, this is just very reflective. I I think of the broader tactics of this administration and maybe kind of the mainstream cultural left in general when it comes to just trying to kind of disingenuously cherry pick, you know, lines that are kind of hidden like, like somewhere in there. I mean, it, it cannot be emphasized enough that. Uh, I, I think what Delano said it, 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 on the on the merits of this one particular line is accurate. Is that it's uh, taken at its face. It's 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 not egregious. I mean, it just happens to be true that some slaves may have been taught certain skills. By the way, um, there's actually a parallel to be drawn here as well to World War II. If I can make a, a somewhat inartful analogy, I mean, some Holocaust survivors, some concentration camp survivors, have written at times quite powerfully actually about some of the skills that they learned um uh, while working in concentration camps and, and i i, I want to be very clear here I, I like in no way whatsoever for god's sake am i ever I, i'm literally standing here i'm literally standing here with my rock from the auschwitz crematorium that i keep here to ground me every single mm. day so I, I am not, for for God's sake, offering any kind of apology of the same way that Florida is not offering any kind of apology for slavery. But it just happens to be true that in some moments of the most tragic moments of history, perhaps there is a silver lining of all silver linings. But that's kind of all in the weeds. The, the, the more important point here is that any intellectually honest reading – of the actual curriculum – and I'm not going to lie to you. I've not read the whole thing, but I have skimmed through quite a bit of it. This is just a pure cherry pick. I mean, like there is repeated rhetorical condemnation of, of the unambiguous abomination, the abhorrent uh, moral stain that was America's original sin, which was chattel slavery. So this is it's just so, so disingenuous. Um, the final thing that I that I guess I'll say about it is part of a broader point where the administration just continuously picks on Florida. Kamala Harris, mm. of course. 
in the run-up to Roe versus Wade had a similar pit stop somewhere down here in Florida where she was talking about Florida's um at the time was only a, I think at the time was only a 15-week abortion ban. She was condemning that. So they've decided to to pick on Florida for various reasons. I, I guess they think that benefits them. I, I I as a Floridian, I happen to think it probably also benefits Florida um to to have a, a fight with this woeful and, and catastrophic, catastrophically inept administration. Um, but I, yeah, I guess that's basically it for me. I was going to add when Delano mentioned, um, how, how various people have weighed in on this, that it's just another sad chapter in this long pattern the left has of deciding which black voices are legitimate and valid. Mm. Um, because actually the man who drafted this curriculum has been out, for instance, on ABC News um, and you know gets truncated uh, by them, of course, as well, defending the curriculum, defending what was written um, by him. Uh, by the way. And so if this this black voice con- conforms to the left's preferred narrative, then they're elevated and treated as legitimate in the case of Kamala Harris here, right? The, the media does not like Ron DeSantis. The media believes that uh, what Ron DeSantis has, does, has done is not just politically conservative, but bigoted, um, not just anti-political correctness, not just anti-DEI, but necessarily bigoted. And so with that in mind, um, the people who are speaking out against Ron DeSantis, whether or not they have the truth on their side, whether or not they have the better argument, are going to be treated as more legitimate. Um, you know, People like Thomas Sowell and, and Clarence Thomas have put up with this for decades. I don't know how, but they have. So it's not new. But in this case, um, it's just being treated as Ron DeSantis versus like the, the American history when Ron DeSantis didn't write this. <laughs> a, a black man wrote this and has been defending it. And uh, because his take on it does not com- conform to the take the white liberals in uh, our newsrooms have, then it's just it's not as legitimate as Kamala Harris's take. And we lose so much nuance. Um, and the other thing I'll add is just what a despicable smear it is. Again, we are not saying what Ron DeSantis, uh, we're not saying that Ron DeSantis is agreeing over the marginal tax rate, is disagreeing with the marginal tax rate. We're not saying that Ron DeSantis is uh, disagreeing about some foreign policy question. We're saying that he is a, a racist, that he is actually erasing uh, the worst chapters in American history because he has some sort of racial animus, that he is a facilitator of white supremacy that is despicable. And we have been so conditioned to see it as normal. It has been so normalized in this media and politics climate, but it is despicable. It is so disgusting. And we should never let ourselves become numb to how gross that is. And this is obviously a bad faith argument, um, ad hominem, an attempt to cast anyone who dares dissent from whatever prevailing orthodoxy is as evil and bigoted and beyond reproach. And we should note the asymmetry here of this is a massive national controversy, but at every major elite institution, uh, it's taught that America is the most rapacious, evil, destructive country in the history of mankind. And, you know, that it's justifiable to go about destroying cities and eviscerating law and order, et cetera. But this one line cherry picked taken out of context from a curriculum uh, is used to create a national controversy. Um, Beyond that, 
I think it's just worth highlighting the deeper issue here, which is that the left views education as a vehicle for indoctrination. And so when you take away that vehicle and you actually put the curriculum in the hands of actually, in this case, the governed effectively uh, by way of the public schools, where actually representatives of the people are asserting control, more control over those schools, that poses an existential threat to the elite, as does the fact that you're talking about history here, because you change the future by manipulating your history. And that is how the mm. left has operated. And thus, you can't have any kind of competing narrative in history specifically and in education more broadly, or you lose your ability, your inbuilt advantage to control the populace and have a docile future generation of social justice warriors or whatever the next iteration of them are going to be. So at core, I always believe that that is what the freak out is over education, leaving aside, of course, the fact that when it comes to competing against public schools, that poses an existential threat to the teachers unions, which is a massive power block for the left as well. But this is why education is an area that makes the left so crazed and hysterical and why they have to attack anyone who would dare assert themselves in challenging the left's hegemony over that institution. All right, Ben, that's a perfect transition to you uh, and your segment on DEI. Sure. So let's talk about the uh, DEI hegemony that reigns over every other influential institution. And you know, this is going to be, for me, I think, a pretty optimistic segment. You know, We talked in the wake of the SFFA v. Harvard decision you know, that we sort of would take a wait and see approach generally in terms of what will schools do to try to get around this ruling, striking at affirmative action, obviously taken to its logical conclusion the jurisprudence and the broader, the political argument that's sort of baked into uh, the ruling in SFFA v. Harvard would strike at the core of the very DEI regime itself if broadly applied. And now we're actually seeing some really interesting data points that suggest that institutions are reacting uh, in, I think, positive ways from the perspective of, you know, a harmonious republic generally and actually a moral, lawful, and just system where people are judged on their merits. And there's not race-based discrimination under the guise of anti-racism. So first, back on July 21st, the Wall Street Journal published an article titled The Rise and Fall of the Chief Diversity Officer. And to quote a bit from it, it notes that companies, including Netflix, Disney, and Warner Brothers Discovery, have recently said that high-profile diversity, equity, and inclusion executives will be leaving their jobs. Thousands of diversity-focused workers have been laid off since last year, and some companies are scaling back racial justice commitments. And the journal cites a number of reasons for this. Jobs were put in the crosshairs after many companies started re-examining their executive ranks during the tech sector shakeout last fall, which shows you, by the way, that as we've sort of argued before, it may well be that the DEI regime and, and the administrators and associates who are hired to serve it might be a luxury good, so to speak, that falls once margins actually compress. Leave that aside. Also, some chief diversity officers say their work is facing additional scrutiny since the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions and companies brace for potential legal challenges. So to that end, Josh, in a great Newsweek piece recently, highlighted a couple of other data points showing the scrutiny that corporations are coming under based upon, in part, the jurisprudence in the SFFA v. Harvard. So for one thing, Senator Tom Cotton sent letters to 51 law firms detailing possible 
violations of federal civil rights laws, they and their clients may be violating via their DEI programs and calling on those companies, many of them elite white shoe law firms, to preserve documents in advance of congressional oversight and impending lawsuits. And it's worth noting that in his letters to these 51 firms, he also cites the argument put forth by the commissioner of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, who wrote in the wake of the ruling that based upon an expansive reading of Title VII that EEOC and the DOJ may well have, this could implicate a host of increasingly popular race-conscious corporate initiatives, I'm, I'll quote her briefly here, from providing race-restricted access to mentoring, sponsorship, or training programs, to selecting interviewees partially due to diverse candidate slot policies, to tying executive or employee compensation to the company achieving certain demographic targets, and on and on. She, she concludes, between today's wake-up call and affirmative action restrictions and what may be coming down the pike from the court's next term on the scope of adverse actions covered by Title VII, something, by the way, that Justice Gorsuch referenced in his opinion, there's never been a better time for companies to take a hard look at their diversity programs. So also 13 Republican state attorneys general, as Josh note, notes in his article, sent a letter to the CEOs of all Fortune 100 companies instructing them that as employers under federal and state law, they must refrain from discriminating on the basis of race, whether on the guise of DEI or otherwise. That letter writes in part, we urge you to immediately cease any unlawful race-based quotas or preferences your company has adopted for its employment and contracting practices. Last but not least, how this is actually already playing out in the courts. A U.S. district court for the Eastern District of Tennessee put out an opinion recently noting that when it comes to race-based government programs, they must be, quote, sufficiently coherent for purposes of strict scrutiny. And that's citing the SFFA v. Harvard opinion. Uh, and that came in context, by the way, of the defendants in that case, the Department of Agriculture and the Small Business Association, seeking to use a rebuttable presumption that certain minority groups were socially advantaged to qualify them for inclusion in a federal program that awards contracts on a preferred basis to businesses owned by individuals in those minority groups. And the court ruled they could not use that rebuttable presumption. So what you're seeing now is congressional oversight, you're seeing states beginning to intervene, and you're also seeing federal courts basically show us that actually the affirmative action ruling may well end up applied broadly, and there will be political and legal pressure to bring that to bear. So uh, I view this as an unalloyed good. I'm pleasantly surprised so far at the push that's happened in the immediate wake of the ruling to actually expand it and strike at the core of the DEI regime. I'm curious what you all make of it. I also have been pretty white pilled. Um, uh, you know, I feel I, I feel rare. I, we've had a lot of white pills recently. I'm kind of moving away from my normal kind of uh, dour, pessimistic, you know, late stage republic. <laughs> what time is it? Kind of spiel. Um, no, but this is it's good stuff. I mean, like obviously we need we need to like see that there's follow through. I mean, from these 13 attorneys general. I, I, I guess if I want to play the pessimist a little bit, I would ask why was it only 13 attorneys general? I think there's 27 Republican AG, so slightly less than half signed. Um, including I probably should note to call her out a little bit, Ashley Moody here in Florida. You know, we have a wonderful governor, obviously, in Ron DeSantis, but I a lot of Floridians have some some qualms as to just how hardcore our attorney general was. So I was pretty upset to see that she did not join this excellent letter letter that was a co-authored uh, or led at least by Kansas and Tennessee. Anyway, um, that aside, I mean, it's obviously good. This Tom Cotton letter is very good. Tom Cotton, I think himself briefly worked at a big law firm. So he's, he, he's a very good senator to kind of send this out to to all of big law. One other data point, um, Ben, I, I, I can't quite recall if you mentioned this. 
Um, you know, going back to the horrible incident at Stanford Law School back in March, where Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan was 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 shouted down by a a, a loathsome I don't know how else to say it a loathsome mob of far left crazy people, frankly. I don't know. I, I, I'll just not mince words here. Um, the dean at the law school, the DEI dean, Tyrion Steinbach, who found herself at the epicenter of that whole tempest in a teapot, and she stood up there and she defended the students. She she basically joined the protest against Kyle Duncan. She did not abide by her, her duty as an administrator to preserve order and the judge's free speech rights. She, quote unquote, resigned last Thursday, which you know reads a heck of a lot like she was asked to step down, perhaps was fired. Um, that happened four months too late. This should have happened promptly after her disgraceful Wall Street Journal op-ed, where she really did not apologize much at all after this incident, but it's better late than never. So that's a very good scalp, I think, for us to take as well. You might get in trouble for phrasing it that way, Josh. <laughs> it's not very inclusive. I thought this was a safe space, Emily. <laughs> right? Well, I actually was going to bring that up too, because I think there is this momentum. Um, you know, I had Liz Wheeler on Federalist Radio Hour last week, and the way she sees it, she's described it as sort of really this is the left's last chance to uh, cement that uh what's the right word this this sort of tyranny of their worldview and uh i think that is a white pill i'm hesitant to take it because uh you know the dei postings exploded job postings exploded in 2020 we have seen as the economy uh had some issues those opportunities contract and we have seen layoffs in the dei sector and uh i, I get it i think that is all very amusing uh, at the same time I also think they're probably rebranding some of these positions. Um, and, you know, if, if we're still up over the 2020 baseline, or if, even if we're coming down from the 2020 high, we're, we're still up over the baseline, uh, which I don't think is good. And I just have a hard time, just like Larry Fink, not saying ESG anymore. Does that mean he's not going to pursue the goals of ESG? I don't think so. Um, so I, I just believe when you have a generation, the Zoomers that are coming into the workplace, the generation beneath them that have been conditioned. I mean, the poll that I saw on patriotism today, I think it was an Axios, um, people who said they were extremely proud to be an American. It has dipped so far in a really quick amount of time. Uh, and so I, I just still think this infrastructure, um, even if it's less formalized and even if it's a little undercover, you're still going to have a generation of people with the wrong mindset coming into posts of leadership um, and implementing, you know, ESG, DEI agendas. Um, so I do think the momentum is good because I think it's creating incentives against um, you know, this, these poisonous, toxic ideologies and, and, you know, not factual ideology. So I think that's good. Um, but I'm also very hesitant to get too optimistic and maybe that's a personal fault. <laughs> uh, but on that note, Josh, I'm going to toss it back to you, uh, to take us through everything that's happening in Israel right now. Uh, well, Delano, do you want to weigh in on, on that? Oh, did I miss Delano? Yeah, really. I think really we should quick. only have the white people talk about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really quick, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One, in terms of the SFFA decision, um, I think Justice Thomas's Justice Thomas's concurring decision really put the rhetorical axe to the root of this entire equity industrial complex. And to me, the biggest loser, um, in terms of of what he was saying, was not just his colleague Katanji Brown Jackson 
but really it was Ibram Kendi, two two people, Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, um, because their entire worldview is is based on you know the the current definition of equity, and D'Angelo, who I see is is sort of partly being the face of these types of DEI dogma programs, and when I say DEI, I really mean demoralization, extortion, and intimidation, because that's that's what it is when you have to sit through a training program and be told because of your skin color, you are either an oppressor or um, oppressed. And I think it's a good thing that these things are dying out. I hope it happens even faster because really what they were pushing is a, is a noxious form of race pseudoscience. And I'll leave, I'll leave you guys with one name. It's a guy named Samuel Cartwright, who I believe was a physician, 19th century, who came up with the term, he coined the term drapedomania, uh, which was a condition he said in, uh, affected the uh, enslaved Africans who wanted their freedom. So he said that they, they had a, a psychological condition that made them sought, seek their freedom. And I, I see D'Angelo as the 21st century version of that, where she believes that people who refuse to be guilted for things that they didn't do um, have come down with a condition called white fragility. Um, and, and so many of these programs are pushing that type of dogma in corporate America, in K through 12 education. And then obviously we understand, you know, how the DEI bureaucracy um, has infected, you know, the, the academy. So it's, it's good that these things are dying. Um, and, and I hope that the, the speed of that process only speeds up from here on out. Uh, so let's stay on the broad topic of uh, of judiciaries, I guess. Um, although, real quick, I just feel compelled to kind of underscore one thing Delano said, which I think is 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 totally accurate, which is this direct intellectual line that you can draw from Ibram X. Kennedy and anti-racism to the Katanji Brown Jackson dissent in SFFA. I mean, the Jackson dissent is literally just anti-racism put into the United States reporter at the Supreme Court. And, you know, we've said on the show before, but if you haven't done so yet, you really should read Clarence Thomas's concurrence, one of my absolute favorite writings that he's ever produced on that court. And, you know, he's produced some bangers over the years, as the, as the kids say these days. Um, but let's stay on the topic of judiciary. So, um, Israel has had a judicial reform debate for many months now. This is not new for those of you who have been paying attention. I previously covered it on this show, so I wanted to come back and touch on it now that there's been some pretty important developments. So if we go back to way earlier this year, after Netanyahu's coalition got back into power in December, they had campaigned on, among it, among other issues, finally reforming the Supreme Court of Israel. And for those of you who don't follow this as, as closely as I do, it, it, it's worth reminding the audience that the Supreme Court of Israel has powers that quite possibly no other Supreme Court in the world has. And this only happened in the 1990s. So it happened about 45 years after Israel was founded in 1948. What happened was you had a far left president of the Supreme Court, Chief Justice, those two terms in this context are interchangeable, uh, a man by the name of Aaron Barak, a far left guy who self-pronounced, he said he was doing a constitutional revolution and arrogated to the Supreme Court powers that the Knesset, the parliament, did not pass under statute, certainly was not inherently vested in the Supreme Court by a constitution because there is no written constitution. He literally just said it, snapped his fingers, and that was it. 
And among the powers that he gave the Supreme Court was there was no standing. You didn't have to show that there was an injury. The Supreme Court could take any case at any time for any reason whatsoever, and they could decide any case at any time for any reason whatsoever on any grounds whatsoever. So unlike in the United States, where judicial review has to be cabins to a constitution or a statute, there has to be some law that you are interpreting not the case. Post-constitutional revolution in Israel, the Supreme Court of Israel can overturn a law or even a parliamentary cabinet appointment. So it's kind of the equivalent of vetoing kind of a treasury secretary appointment on the grounds that the law policy or appointment is quote-unquote unreasonable. It's totally absurd. I mean, Bob Bork, who of course was Ronald Reagan's 1987 nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he gave us tragically the term Bork, the verb, thanks to uh, the late not-so-great Senator Ted Kennedy and his junior colleague playing the Robin to his Batman, then Senator Joe Biden of Delaware. And you know Bob Bork wrote a book like 20 years ago talking about how horrible the, the Israeli Supreme Court was. He had a whole chapter on this. So this is not new. So the Netanyahu government runs on uh, on, a on a sweeping suite of judicial reforms to finally, finally do what the right and previous governments could not do and rein in this power that happened 30 years ago now. And the protests were were really unprecedented and I would argue unfathomable. Rioters, anarchists were setting fire. They were shutting down the highways. They shut down Israel's only international airport, Ben Gurion Airport, earlier this year. They, they were uh, the Kohelet Policy Forum, which is the right wing think tank, which is basically the brainchild of these reforms. You had protesters vandalizing, kind of breaking the doors of the office, just awful, awful, horrible, horrible stuff. So finally, uh, the government hit a pause button on this. And when they resuscitated the judicial reform measure over the past month, month and a half or so, they took a tiny sliver. Like I like literally, I would say five to ten percent of what the previous judicial reforms were, just one sliver, just to show that they could do something, you know, try to appease some of the more right wing members of the current coalition, things like that. And what they chose was a reasonableness law. The only thing, you know, the, the media misinformation on this has been utterly disgusting. People like Tom Friedman of the New York Times have been writing all these horrific, horrific columns. It, it, it's worth emphasizing that the only sliver of the judicial reform that the Israeli government passed on Monday earlier this week says that the Supreme Court cannot overturn a law or a parliamentary, a.k.a. cabinet appointment, simply because the Supreme Court, in its grand philosophical musings, has decided that that law, policy, or appointment is quote-unquote unreasonable. That is literally all that passed. <laughs> earlier this week. Um, I, I, and like the headlines, you know, oh my God, democracy is ending. The Biden administration has weighed in and says, we don't approve of this. Anthony Blinken, you know, Marie Harf has been on cable news. I mean, you know, the band is back together again and the band was not very good the first time around. So the disinformation is is, is just really disgusting here. And you know, the reason that, I, that I've been so tuned into this debate, well, it's kind of like a Venn diagram overlap of issues that I follow closely. You got the constitutional theory, Middle East and all that stuff, too. But it's also just a perfect NatCon issue. I mean, to me, kind of this whole debate is kind of national conservatism versus globalism, liberalism in a nutshell. You have these kind of more secular, globalist, unaccountable elites here in the United States. It's the deep state. In Israel, it's been their juristocracy, their judicial supremacy, their kind of bar association, handpicked justices. 
versus kind of a more nationalist, religious, traditionalist flank. Because in Israel, the coalition is, is disproportionately comprised of more religious people. That's really what's going on here. It's really kind of a proxy for a secularist Supreme Court versus more religious, traditionalist parliamentary coalition. That's really kind of the cultural clash going on there. Anyway, the, the Western disinformation has just been totally, totally loathsome on this. And I thought it was important just to push back a little bit there. But I, 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 a very last quick point, I sincerely hope that the the military reservists who are threatening to to not serve, you know, I hope that they get their you know what in order because you know Israel is also a country that cannot risk their their defense and their security apparatus, you know, letting down for even a second due to domestic policy disputes. So that is really just loathsome in and of itself as well. But I'll turn it over to you guys for your thoughts on that note. I was just going to add quickly that it's amazing. It reminds me in some ways of the Kamala Harris smear, the extent to which our media will take political spin, which is normal and inevitable in uh, systems of uh, democracy, Republican government, whatever it is, they will take political spin and run with it as the truth um, without any nuance, without any balance, when it is a truth they're comfortable with and they agree with or an alleged truth that they're comfortable with or what they agree with. So they end up basically just being the uh, public relations department of political causes. And I feel like as Josh just outlined it, that's basically what we're seeing here. And it's not useful or helpful to anyone, basically. Yeah, so first thing is, I thought that the American left didn't like an empowered Supreme Court, but I guess uh, it's different in Israel. And of course, what, what this speaks to is, the American left wants the global left ascendant. And so they can't tolerate the idea that a quote unquote right wing government, and it's all kind of on a sliding scale, but a more right leadership in Israel reflecting the will of their people shouldn't be able to have a say that the leftist Supreme Court ought to be have veto power and that judicial tyranny Auto ran. There are other elements to this. The press's uh, disinformation, misinformation on this issue, of course, them engaging in projection when it comes to mis and disinformation, is all. There are many reasons that drive it, and we can go to to the much deeper animus. Well, first of all, that the media is overwhelmingly leftist, and that there's an animus on the left towards Israel, and particularly those on the right in Israel, um, and any sort of again, assertion of, quote unquote, conservative views over those of a leftist Supreme Court there. But there's a more narrow issue, which is that this the Biden administration and the left broadly are engaged in a concerted effort to isolate and alienate Israel, of which this effort is a part, uh, including potentially trying to sow the seeds of an astroturf civil war there as a means of downgrading Israel's place in the Middle East and elevating Iran as the partner par excellence for America there to purportedly create stability in the region. And this was the Obama-Biden agenda. This is now the, I guess, Biden-Harris agenda as well. So the information operation around Israel, which has also manifested itself truly in fomenting dissent on the ground, is actually all about intervening in service of what the Biden Harris administration sees as American national interest, which is, of course, completely antithetical to America's national interest. And I would just emphasize the point again that this is, of course, the globalists 
intervening in Israeli politics in a bid to foist their favored views on the Jewish state. Yeah, I mean, I would echo some of the uh, similar sentiments about uh, leftism as a, as a global force, all right, and some of the same people who want to, um, you know, expand the Supreme Court here, I'm, I'm sure have, have very strong feelings about what's going on in Israel. But one thing I think everyone hit on is, is the role of the media in this. And I think this even goes back to, to the Florida controversy. And, and this is what I call corporate, the corporate press is constantly, particularly when it's being used by the left, involved in what I call media laundering schemes. And they will uh, insert or introduce a particular uh, issue into politics and culture, right? A legitimate issue. Um, so confusion through uh, emotional manipulation, euphemisms, ad hominem. And then in that final step, which sort of mirrors a money laundering scheme, but that final step, which is acceptance, you know, out pops an approved position. And then the folks in media will use that to hammer people as hard as they can and ensure conformity. So you, you, you see this on a number of different issues, both nationally and internationally. And, and I think um, this particular controversy about the judicial reforms in Israel is yet another example of that. All right, on that note, now for something completely different. <laughs> that would be uh, Barbenheimer, Barbie Heimer, Oppen Barbie, however you want to phrase it. Um, it does have its own Wikipedia page at this point. But uh, in all seriousness, these movies blew expectations out of the water. The country in a rare sort of gasp, uh, last gasp of monoculture all returned to the theaters and went and saw these movies this weekend. Barbie did significantly better than Oppenheimer, almost double in uh, the domestic box office, but uh, both films beat expectations. Barbie was expected to do better. It did much better than it was expected. Oppenheimer was expected to do well and did much better than expected because it became uh, a, a very rare shared pop culture event. And in this case, that's probably due to the fact that you have uh, somewhat, or at least a sensibly divergent interests, right? It was the, the ironic juxtaposition, the uh, smashing together of something as uh, seemingly trivial and girly as Barbie with something as serious and uh, masculine as Oppenheimer. So that gave couples an opportunity to have a very bizarre date night and spend some time in Barbie land and then some time pondering uh, nuclear weapons and uh, the existence of humans on the planet. Um, I think this is interesting for a number of reasons, and uh, I'm, of course, right to do this segment because I have seen neither film. This <laughs> is just a joke, but in all honesty, I actually haven't seen the film. What's interesting to me about Barbenheimer is that these are not two very different movies uh, when you dig uh, past the surface. Obviously, they are, are very different in some important ways, but I think it's funny that we see them as being so different because um, Barbie is something that was kind of only made possible by the post-nuclear world order. Um, all of a sudden we were drowning in plastics um, and that's, you know, thanks in part to American hegemony uh, for better or worse uh, in the Middle East and around the world. And that if you, if you watch an old movie, for instance, one thing you don't see a lot of, especially movies that were filmed before World War II, but even after, like shortly after, you don't see a lot of plastics. <laughs> and uh, if you look around yourself now and you look at all of the different things 
things like just in your line of sight that are plastic that we might see as uh, essential. Um, you know, we, we probably could do that without plastic, even though plastic has, has surely brought a lot of prosperity to the world. So this isn't a, a screed against plastics. It's just a reminder of how profoundly different the world we live in is, um, not just because of plastics, but because of, in some ways, Oppenheimer, because of the world. Uh, that changed after the invention of nuclear weapons or after the, the deployment of nuclear weapons, um, it, it completely changed the way that different parts of the world, uh, for instance, being able to have cheap, accessible, quick, easy plastics um, because of, for instance, American hegemony, the technological innovations that American hegemony ushered in. This has all happened really quickly. And if you listen to this podcast regularly, you know, I, I sound like a broken record on this stuff. Um, and it is true. Like these things are mind blowing. The example I always use is Betty White, someone whose first time on television was actually on an experimental broadcast. Like her first time on TV was an experiment and the woman passed away in the age of TikTok. Uh, these things are, are sort of mind blowing how quickly the world has changed. But Oppenheimer is fundamentally a movie about how quickly uh, some of those those changes took place uh, and, and how our world has changed so much in so little time. Um, and a lot of that ties back to the technology of nuclear weapons. Um, the, the other take is that monoculture is a good thing to have these shared sort of touchstones is uh, always a welcome uh, event and it doesn't happen as often as it used to, but it's good when it does happen. Conservatives are debating Barbie. We all knew that would happen. Ben Shapiro's burning Barbies uh, says that it's terrible. Jack Butler in National Review um, has you know, the take that uh, conservatives are, are getting it all wrong. It's much more complicated. Uh, so anybody's input on Barbenheimer is welcome here, but um, my own sort of takeaway from the combination of all of it was, um, man, uh, Oppenheimer set in motion some events that we don't even think about um, as being tied directly back to nuclear weapons. So with that, I'll toss to the group. So I have not seen either film yet either. I will say that uh, everything that Jack Butler says has a rebuttable presumption of being dead on wrong and that the exact opposite is true. So if he's saying that conservatives are missing something, then I presume that conservatives are missing absolutely nothing, and that Ben Shapiro is correct to burn Bobby to burn Barbie dolls on his podcast studio. Um, I, I am looking forward to seeing Oppenheimer. I, I've heard from some friends it's very good. I've heard from some to be a little more cautious. Obviously, it seems like it's a slog, three and a half hours, three hours, 45 minutes, whatever the exact running time is, kind of brings me back to Godfather Part Two, my single favorite movie of all time. And, you know, I I, I think back to Godfather Part Two. I, I think back when that movie came out in 1974, they had a literal intermission in the middle, actually, um, where you could get out and, like, get concessions. I, I could be wrong about this, but these kind of DVDs back when we all had DVDs, my Godfather Part Two DVD was actually a two-part DVD, and it, it said intermission. So, so I, I presume that was kind of uh, modeled after the in theater experience might be nice to kind of bring that back, especially for those of us who might have slightly weaker bladders, but I'm delving into far too much, um, you know, TMI at, at this point here. Um, the one thing that the Oppenheimer movie does kind of, you know, bring back is, is the debate over Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, you know, whether this was the correct decision, which is kind of one of those questions that I've wrestled with myself quite a bit with over the years. Um, and, and and I'm genuinely sympathetic to to both sides of, of this one. Uh, ben or Delano, I, I'd kind of be curious if you guys have thoughts on that. I, I do ultimately typically fall back 
to the uh, default position that Truman was justified to, to order it. Um, there's this one really, really powerful quote that I saw in an article years ago from this U.S. Marine who who was a who was stationed in the in the Pacific Theater in World War II. He was part of of the brigade or battalion that that was set to invade uh, Honshu, like the mainland, the, the the big island of Japan. And it's just this really kind of tears at your heartstrings quote, where when he and his team heard that the bomb went off in in, in Hiroshima. Um, they all wept with joy, not because they were happy that innocent civilians were dying, but because they knew that the war would end and that they were going to live and to see their wives and children again. And it was it was a really powerful quote. Um, but you know, I think a lot of just war theory types tend to kind of push back against that narrative, and they have some merit too. So, anyway, it's it's a tough issue. It's a very difficult ethical issue. But um, uh, yeah, Emily, I very much agree with your point about monoculture as well. I think you're right to flag that as being important. So I'll table my thoughts on uh, the merits and demerits of uh, Truman using nuclear weapons in World War II. Um, I have to think about how I would want to articulate my response to that. Um, and I'll set that aside for maybe another episode and just talk briefly about the fact that, yes, full disclosure, I have not seen either of these movies either. I find it interesting what it is in terms of cultural items that break through like why these two movies at this time generate such fervor one way or the other and there's so many other major tv series or movies and the like that just fall flat so it's interesting to me this will probably be an interesting case study down the road of why is it that these kind of went viral for better or worse depending upon your perspective on these two movies um, but setting that aside you know one of the things that i continue to lament just in terms of our pop culture is that when it comes to almost any big movie so-called like these you always have to start looking at the reviews to consider are there going to be so many aspects of these movies that whatever their merits the woking or the historical revisionism within them is going to be so overpowering that it's revolting and it causes you not to want to see almost anything that is produced today and that's where I find myself with a lot, not every movie, not every TV series, because there are plenty of them where the merits do overcome the demerits, or it would be very hard to inject politics into them without totally ruining the stories. But I do find that it's uh, it's just a demoralizing and depressing place to be in when you constantly have to be on guard for how perverse the propaganda is going to be and how much they're going to show you in a movie or a TV series or beyond that they hate your guts, but you just have to kind of grit and bear it uh, and continue to try to enjoy what you can of a plot. So for me, you know, and that maybe that goes to uh, a monocultural issue of there used to be certain cultural touchstones where we had differences, but we agreed on certain fundamental underlying things. And those underlying and fundamental principles would show through in the best in arts and culture, including in films. Uh, but today, it's so very hard to find uh, content in movies, certainly, um, that isn't going to turn your stomach in many ways. And I suspect there's probably plenty to turn one's stomach uh, in both of these movies, but I guess I'll report back after I see at least one of two of them. Yeah, I mean, like everyone else, I haven't seen either. Um, there's certainly a much higher chance I'll see Oppenheimer because I have a tremendous amount of respect for Christopher Nolan as a, as a filmmaker. Um, 
sidebar, I think Prestige is probably one of his best and most underrated films. Um, I, I'm also aware that there was a sort of a minor controversy um, in Barbie around a drawing um, of the Pacific and particularly the South China Sea and, you know, China not liking, um, I guess, Barbie's sort of geographical interpretation. So um, I'm, I'm, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of the CCP's influence on, on that film, particularly in the, in the Pacific. Um, but, but it is interesting because I've heard people, some conservatives say, you know, Barbie's the most woke movie that they've seen. And others say that, no, the movie is actually mocking sort of uh, wokeness and because it's so overdone and overall. And uh, I guess that'll remain one of life's mysteries because uh, my daughters are seven and three. And I wouldn't take them to see <laughs> to see to see this film. So uh, you know, uh, I guess I'll just have to read about it on on the internet. <laughs> well, with that, Josh, you can kick us off on final thoughts today. Sure. So I uh, I, I have like two very brief final thoughts. Um, so I, I missed last week's episode, of course. I, I was off, and I know one of the topics that we covered on this show last week um, was Jason Aldean's music video, Try That in a Small Town, which as of the time that we are recording this episode, I see is now number two on the Billboard Hot 100, even though it didn't even rank in the top 100 when the song came out in May. So, um, the, you know, the response to kind of rallying around that song has 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 really been tremendous. Um, and I say that as kind of a an unadulterated country music fan myself. I actually even saw Jason Aldean um, in concert in Washington, D.C. nine years ago now. If I recall, Florida George Line actually warmed up for Jason Aldean that night, which is pretty funny because they're now way too big to warm up, I presume, for anyone. Um, but the kind of the other and main point that I wanted to say for my final thought was that the reason that I was <clears throat> was off last week, um, I, I was speaking at a, at a summit in, in Park City, Utah, the Deer Valley, and then we kind of rented a car and drove up to Wyoming and did Jackson Hole, Grand Teton National Park, Yellowstone National Park. And I, I just wanted to kind of just say just how beautiful the American West is. Um, I, I mean, wow. I mean, I, 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 li I lived in Colorado for a year before moving to Florida, um, albeit it was in Denver, which is a city that I have kind of, um, you know, uh, lukewarm thoughts about. Uh, Colorado is obviously a beautiful state in many ways, but Man, so much of about there that I think a lot of kind of East Coasters just just genuinely either don't know about or just for whatever reason, you know, financial time, whatever, haven't had the opportunity to explore. I, I just cannot more strongly recommend um, the next time you have an opportunity to get out to that part of the country to just just see it. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, Grand Teton National Park, I mean, seeing the Tetons with these glacial lakes, uh, Jenny Lake, Taggart Lake. I, honestly, like in my mind, I think the only thing that I've ever seen in my entire life that mirrors that level of sheer natural beauty also in the United States um, was Big Sur and kind of the Monterey Peninsula in California, kind of doing the California Route 1 Pacific Coast Highway Drive. I mean, this is just absolutely stunning stuff. And kind of Yellowstone speaks for itself. Um, we, were, we were kind of driving through Yellowstone one day and we found ourselves um, the first car of like a 50 to 100 car line. We're literally the first car when like a dozen or two dozen bison just started walking down the road. And like, you know, I was like, I'm like low key freaking out. Like my heart is kind of like, oh my God. I mean, these things are monsters, right? And like, you know, we've all seen the videos, like, are they going to ram the car? And now, of course, it ended up being just perfectly fine. But it was just a really cool experience. And it's kind of one of those kind of, you know, make you fall in love with America kind of sort of thing, because there was just so much incredible natural beauty 
in this country. Um, and, you know, it kind of ties into a slight kind of Nat Connie theme of kind of like an American greatness conservatism, a grandeur of America conservatism. And um, it was just a great trip. So I wanted to report on that. So I'll have a brief, uh, another optimistic point for my parting shots. You know, we've talked a lot about, and I've been trying to cover what efforts are going through not just in the judicial branch, but in the legislative branch, efforts to defund and dismantle the censorship industrial complex, disinformation industrial complex, censorship, mass public private censorship regime, however we want to term it. And last week, I believe after we recorded, uh, Senator Rand Paul and Jim jo uh, Congressman Jim Jordan introduced legislation, the Free Speech Protection Act, which had been telegraphed for some time. Uh, which is a very comprehensive piece of legislation. I'm fascinated to see if and how it moves in both the House and then really the Senate will probably be where the jury is really out on this. And what that does is essentially prohibit government employees from doing anything and everything that was codified in that permanent, uh, or rather that preliminary injunction in the Missouri v. Biden case, stops them from coercing, colluding with, chiding, cajoling, in any way working uh, with social media platforms or putatively private cutouts to go about censoring and abridging our First Amendment protected speech. And it doesn't just prohibit those acts. It actually has some teeth. Uh, it allows people to bring civil suits against the government employees who are involved in that censorship. It subjects them to serious disciplinary penalties, up to including loss of job, significant fines, et cetera. And that is really where the rubber meets the road with any and all of these reforms. Do they have substantial enough teeth that actually the individual government agents involved in abrogating our rights pay a personal and professional penalty for it? Uh, this legislation does. So I'll be interested to see how that moves going forward and uh, certainly keep the NATCON squad abreast as it does move forward. Yeah, so uh, for my par parting thoughts, my final thoughts, I, I want to go back to Florida for a quick second because this entire controversy um, made me think of a few things. One top line is that boiling blood rarely reaches the brain. Um, so sometimes it's, it's good to just bring the temperature down on, on these types of controversies. But, but I really, I think the issue itself shows why education is the key battleground in the culture war. Um, and, it, and it also shows what happens when you don't sort of have a, a proper funding uh, in the basics of education, right? So the ability to, to listen to an argument, to critically engage it, <clears throat> excuse me, to consider the sources, um, to debate it, to debate it on its merits. And when those things go out of the window and it's all, you know, emotion, um, then you become vulnerable to the whims of other people who know how to manipulate you, who know how to turn you. And the, the irony is, is, you know, I'm listening to some, some of these folks, primarily on the left, lecturing about, you know, how we don't really want to teach true history, particularly when it comes to, you know, the Black experience in this country. And I thought to myself, these are the same people that cheer Colin Kaepernick when he says that the NFL combine is like a slave auction. They cheered Brian Flores, the, the NFL coach, the former Miami Dolphins head coach, who sued the NFL and said that the NFL itself as an organization is run like a plantation. 
because you have owners, almost exclusively white, and um, uh, 70% black workforce. And so, so he thinks that because the owners are billionaires and the athletes are only millionaires, that it, it really um, is, is basically not that much different from plantation life. And then you have people, again, who call voting laws they don't like, Jim Crow 2.0, Jim Eagle, James Crow Esquire, um, Jimmy Crow. I mean, all the different iterations. And it just shows you that the left really doesn't care about American history and it doesn't care about black history. Um, it just cares about using the moral authority that comes from owning that narrative for its own um, specific political ends. And, I, and I, I find that type of behavior despicable um, because when you know that something is a sore spot and you continue to press it selfishly, cravenly, self-servingly, uh, I, I think it reflects poor character on their part. So, you know, I, I don't know how anyone, particularly any conservative, was allow, allowed themselves to be tricked um, and to think that the people who believe the schoolhouse is where kids should learn about graphic sex acts really, like those people really, really care about education. So it, it was a lesson learned, and I hope people learn it. But to, to quote um, a proverb, um, let me see. I, I want to make sure I get the quote, not to disgust anybody. I hope you're not eating lunch. But in Proverbs, I want to say 2611, it says, as a dog returns, returns to its vomit, so a, a fool repeats his folly. And I, I hope we're done repeating this particular folly. Well, one thing I didn't mention in the uh, Barbieheimer segment is actually that the first Barbie was manufactured in Japan. So in, in 1959, as Japan is climbing its way out of post-war recovery, um, it's it's manufacturing the Barbie. So there's something interesting. Uh, the, the, I think that's an interesting element of the entire conversation. To Delano's point, my final thought is just, wow, uh, mentioning the Florida slave curriculum and then uh, the books, like Gender Queer is a really good example that have been put into public school libraries accessible to very young children. Children certainly, I mean, those books don't belong there, period, but uh, accessible to, to ch shockingly young ages of children. If you show those books to uh, good faith people on the left, they are confused and surprised. And I, I just think that gets to what is really important for all of us, I believe, to recognize is that the, the media is the biggest problem in American politics, because as we talked about in almost every segment this week, this ties it all together, they are doing the work of partisan spins. So what they report is the spin that partisans who have their own motivations and uh, intentions for pushing something ridiculous like genderqueer in libraries, which unions have defended against Muslim parents in places like Dearborn, Michigan, um, like mainstream massive institutions, teacher unions have defended those books. Why? Because the media is lying about them. The media is doing a terrible job covering all of this. Um, and, and so it, that's part of the problem. You know, there, there are people that come from the left that, um, you know, would draw the line in reasonable places, but the media is not allowing those lines to be drawn in reasonable places because everything is book banning. Um, and that's the, the major narrative. There couldn't possibly be a serious conversation about pornography in schools. I felt like Tracy Jordan when I said that the great episode of 30 Rock where he uses the remote and just yells pornography at the TV, a uh, different topic though. Um, that's insane 
it is just, we can't have serious conversations. We can't have serious policy discussions anymore. So uh, on that note, that's my final thought for today. And I'm sure we'll continue to have that conversation every week on the show. On behalf of Josh, Delano, and Ben, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.